podcast this week, Alfred Molina pops into the pod booth to throw us the whip and talk about his new play, Red, or his old play, Red. All will be revealed. Uh, plus, all the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast, it is shocked, shocked that Spain sacked their coach just a day before the World Cup starts. Don't sweat it, though, guys. Bring in Ron Howard. He's a safe pair of hands. Can't go wrong with Ronnie H. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, brought to you once again by those wonderful peeps at Sky Cinema, the dedicated home for movie lovers. Later in the show, I'll be pointing out a couple of movies you can watch on Sky Cinema, just two movies from the 1,000-plus films that are available on demand on Sky Cinema, including a brand-new premiere every single day. How exciting! This week... Helen O'Hara is away in the United States of America ticking off a major, pretty major box from her bucket list. In her absence, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. We have Jurassic World star Nick Dissemlian. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm okay. I'm yeah. all right. Good, good, good. And a man who's watched Jurassic World, Johnny Pyle. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, although I wish I had as, uh, as an impressive a credit to my name as Nick has. Have you yeah. been in anything? Yes, I have. Thank you for asking. Oh, what have you been in? I, I, was, I did some um, voiceover work for the Inbetweeners movie. Really? <laughs> what? What? This is a bombshell. Is it? I think I've told you three or four times. I, I thought, wasn't listening. All no. oh, right, okay, good. Okay, well, what, what happened? Um, so, you know when they're going to the hotel and there's those rowdy football fans on the bus? My knowledge of the Inbetweeners movie is, is lacking. So there's a bit where they're going to a hotel and on a bus and there's some rowdy football fans. Right. And uh, they were locals, uh, so didn't have any English accents or football songs, and he wanted them to be Burnley fans. So he put a call out on Twitter for Burnley fans in London to come down and sing some Burnley chants. Wow. Which I did. How how many dinosaurs are in that scene? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Zero. Oh, not not even one. Well, this is not a dinosaur off. That's a shame. That's a shame. How many Burnley chants were in Jurassic World? Uh, surprisingly few. Okay, 1-1. One, one. Uh, I get to <laughs> arbitrate this one now. I get to decide the winner. Who's in the more impressive movie? I think, looking it up, uh, it's obviously me in Hostel Part 2 <laughs> because I get a fucking credit and you don't. So there you go. Drunk British slob wins the day once again. Thank you very much, Eli Roth. Uh, right, hang on a second. This is, this is huge. This is absolutely huge. Hello, is that Helen O'Hara? It is. Hi. You are live on the Empire podcast. What? Yeah, this oh, is true. Wow. This is true. This is happening right now. Uh, <laughs> how are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm in New York and have therefore had an amazingly large hotel breakfast. So. Okay, excellent. Now, Helen, you can't say why you are in New York. Am I correct? No. But it's for a very exciting reason. Is it not? Yes. Can you give us a squee on a, on a scale of one to ten? <laughs> squee! <laughs> I think that's a, that's a nine. That's a 9.5 squee. Could, at least, yeah. At All least, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. I just want to explain why you weren't on the Empire podcast this week. I am, I am devastated to be missing it, but not devastated enough to not miss it. Um, so, All there right. you go. Are you yeah. sure you don't want to come back? Are you sure you don't want to skip the thing that you're about to do? Because no, we could be talking about no, Steve I'm Trevor and Wonder Woman 1984. are heavy Twitter users. They can probably get an idea of what I'm doing today. Okay, so check out twitter.com for hot scoops and Hashtag stuff. Hashtag Helen Secrets. <laughs> not, not, from, not from my Twitter, no. obviously, but just from Twitter in general. Just there's, from Twitter in general. 
Okay, is it is it anything to do with Donald Trump? Um, only in the anti sense. Okay, are you replacing the Spanish coach at the World Cup? Um, I, I mean, I was asked, but regretfully, I had to turn it down because right. I don't know anything about football. In that case, I have well. <laughs> Hasn't stopped some people over the years. Uh, in that case, I have no idea what you're doing in New York, but I look forward to hearing about it at a later date. Yes, say around the end of the year sometime. Okay, all right, fantastic. Thanks very much, Helen. Bye. Bye-bye, Helen. Bye. Bye. Uh, all right, she'll be back next week. Um, let's get on with the show. Uh, do we have a question? I don't know if we have a question. I'm going to look up. Uh, did I send a question? No. Okay, brilliant. Uh, so I've, I've just blundered into this with no question. Uh, while I am trying to find a question, uh, something pretty cool happened, didn't it, Johnny? Last week, maybe you want to set this up? If you want to explain what happened last week, we were talking about a certain podcast. But I don't think that it happened because of us talking about no, it. No, this is complete uh, serendipity. In fact, I think the, the episode we're going to be talking about in a second was recorded yeah, prior. before we talked about this, this show. But what, what would we be doing? Well, uh, last week on the podcast, Nick, you'll remember because you uh, listen avidly when you're not on. I did, uh, actually. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about the podcast that Chris and I are very much enjoying, which is Are You Talking R.E.M. Re-Me? Which uh, Nick is about to start, I'm sure. I, I think I will. I think I will. Yeah. Despite telling me on the bus on the way here that you hate R.E.M. <laughs> Sorry, what? I'm ambivalent. I'm ambivalent. But don't make this about you're me. R.E.M. Finish ambivalent. The finish the story. Yeah, finish the story. Yeah. And so, we, you know, Chris and I uh, were talking about just what great fans we are of that podcast. Wait a second, wait a second. Okay. Is this an episode of Are You Talking, Are You Talking, Are You Talking, R.E.M., Re-Me, Re-Me, Re-Me? I think it might be. Wow! Hey everyone, I'm Chris. And I'm Johnny. And welcome to Are You Talking, Are You Talking, Are You Talking, R.E.M., Re-Me, Re-Me, Re-Me. Which is the podcast about the podcast about the podcast. Now, this is very, very exciting. Nick is here as well. Special guest. Special guest, Nick DeSemlian. Uh, so this is very exciting. So last week we talked about Are You Talking R.E.M. Re.Me, which is the R.E.M.-centric podcast hosted by Adam Scott and Scott Aukerman, okay, which uh, they, it's the uh, complete and encyclopedic uh, delve into all of R.E.M.'s They talk about nothing albums. else. Nothing else. Exclusively they talk about R.E.M. for two, two and a half hours. Every single week. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about it because we're big REM fans, Johnny yep. and I. Turns out this week, the this episode week's that's dropped, well, today as we record, yeah, but two days ago as we go out, but it dropped this morning. So there was huge excitement in the Empire office this morning when none other than your very own podcast host here, what? Chris Hewitt, was mentioned by name, what? by very name, first name and second name on that podcast. That's mind-blowing. Isn't it? Uh-huh. I mean, it's, not by the hosts, they but by, no uh, they had, I, uh, they do now, <laughs> they but by their very special guest, friend to Empire, Edgar yeah. Wright. Yeah, so uh, I haven't listened to that bit yet, I'm only 20 minutes into it, but uh, apparently, yes, uh, uh, my name is, I'm name-checked in this week's episode, so yes! So I, why for me. I, have listened, why? I have listened to it. Uh, okay, well, what happens? What happens? So uh, they're talking no about... New Orleans Instrumental Number 1, which is on Automatic for People, but also in Baby Driver. And he was using it just as a temp music track. And then he says, two journalists from Empire came to watch the film very early on, which actually refers to the, the pair of you, although he didn't bother mentioning Nick at all well, they, in this. Uh, yeah, he knows people will assume it's me. Yeah, I think, that, I, I think there's about 
25 different people who work for Empire that they would assume it would be before they would get down to you, Nick. And that's, that's, kind of you, that's, not, that's not to diss you in any way or to denigrate you because you're, you're, I mean, you're a good guy, you try your best. But I think... <laughs> you're fine at what you do. I mean, you turn up, and that's basically all we can... <laughs> the best we can hope for is that you turn up. But no, I think there's a lot of people that would assume it would be you, obviously. We went to see Baby Driver yeah. fairly early when it was still being worked on by Edgar. And he had that track in, and after the screening, you uh, dropped him a line and I said did. how much you liked the REM track. Yes, I said, I like the REM track. I think you should keep it in, because he was going to replace it with a piece of score from his composer, Stephen Price. Who has actually written a piece for that. So there you go. And then, so Edgar thought about it and decided to keep it in. And there you go. That is why New Orleans Instrumental Number 1, my favourite of all the New Orleans Instrumentals, uh, is in Baby Driver. I mean, Edgar does claim that you call it one of your famous favourite R.E.M. songs. See, I'm not sure about that. I think his recollection's a little off. He also says that you said that you loved the movie. I got did- that, he got that in. Yeah, I do love the movie. I'm sure you did. I'm just like, yeah. I, just found, I just found it interesting. Like, hey, I love the movie. And also this, by the way. Yeah. I just... I just I was, I was personally a little hurt that he ignored my email to him after the screening. Same take right. it out. He said, can you put in uh, Baby D, Let Me Be Your Fantasy? <laughs> and I never heard back. It would make sense as the theme tune to the whole movie. That's what I suggested. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> baby Driver, Baby yeah. D. I mean... Yeah, that's because you're R.E.M. bivalent. Uh, why are you R.E.M. No, bivalent? No, it's just a band I don't know that much about. And maybe I should start listening to this podcast. Let me be your teacher. <laughs> Let me be your guide. Let me take you by the hand and walk you through this wonderful wonderland. That's an actual lyric. <laughs> That's a lyric. That's from the site when it sleeps tonight. Yeah. No one, no one can tell because no one can make out what Michael Stipe says. Right, okay, so that's I it. I don't for think this. that is a lyric from that song. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, that is it for this episode of Are You Talking? Are You Talking? Are You Talking? REM, re me, re me, re me. Bye. 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 Good app. Great, great app. Great app. I found a question. I found a question. I have a question. The question comes from Twitter. Comes specifically from at Reese L. Griff. Reese L. Griff. Hi, Reese. Hi, Reese. L. Griff. And he asks, what's the worst film to feature dinosaurs? Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. You take that back. You're not in that one. Yeah, who cares? I I might be. Might you? I'm not. Are you? No. You went on set how many times? I was on set for two days. And Colin saw you there? Yeah. There's no real space for you in that. I try to make my presence as obvious as possible. There's no real place for you in the film. Like Um, I I didn't get the... I would have liked to have played the sidekick of uh, Toby Jones' evil character, Uh Gunnar Eversoll. So how how does Edmund go from... from I think I could have worn a matching blonde wig. Yeah. And I could have been his kind of evil sort of minion. Uh Uh-huh. And been there at the auction sort of totting up numbers. I don't think they needed Toby Jones. I don't think they needed him. You didn't need Gunnar Eversoll? No, they, it could have been The Edmund. greatest named character of this year so well, far. Uh, yeah. Gunnar uh, Eversoll? That could have been just Edmund Briggs. That's your name, Edmund Briggs. But what's the okay. character out there? Well, how does Edmund go from excited Mosasaur watcher mm-hmm. to megalomaniac... I'm glad you asked. <laughs> auctioneer? Very traumatised by the events of the first film. Right. Yeah. Uh, keen interest in mathematics. Yeah. Um... Don't forget, has a mallet and he's all ready to go. He has a mullet. A mallet. He has one of those things that you, you use. Is that what you're trying to do with your hair? Is it a mullet you're trying to go? <laughs> don't bring my hair into it. <laughs> it gets very sensitive by his hair. He's sensitive by his hair. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> 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 um, 
it's, it's looking good. It's looking good. Your hair is looking good. Uh, uh, listeners, you can't see Nick's hair, but uh, my, my facial hair has been getting a lot of sort of talk on the on the podcast, which I've enjoyed has, when I'm it not really here. Has. It really has. It's a good beard. I mean, Johnny also has a very very good beard. Uh, Chris, fact, please you, stop you, selling yourself short. You put my beard to shame. I think if anything, Nick is too showy with his beard. Yeah. It's too thick. Mm. So it really shows at the bits where it's not thick. I'm yeah. aiming for Zangief. <laughs> um, You're not far off. Uh, so anyway, back to Edmund. Okay, so, <laughs> oh, yeah. so many segues. So Edmund, Edmund is is traumatized by because people forget that Edmund was at the park. I, so he sees the what's it called, the mosasaur. The mosasaur. So the mosasaurus is said both ways. Yeah. I got extremely wet shooting that scene. My um, word! <laughs> how, how excited were you? <laughs> I was, we were, basically what happened is we were in New Orleans and uh, we were in like a little sort of bleachers stands uh-huh. and there was no dinosaur, I don't uh-huh. want to ruin the magic, oh, but um, instead there was a sort of blue screen thing and uh, there was a man with a hose and he was literally <laughs> hosing us this, with freezing water. This sounds, this sounds, these are sex people, Nick, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, should, you should have just got up and run. Uh, I, yeah. It was very exciting. It was one of the greatest <laughs> moments of my life. But the next day, I had only brought one pair of shoes and one pair of jeans <laughs> to America with me. And the next day, I was walking around the airport in New Orleans. Like I tried to dry them as best I, as best I could, but ultimately, I had very wet, cold feet and freezing cold jeans on. And um, that was a bit of a downer. But the rest of it, you know. Your travel mishaps are amazing. <laughs> Can I share the story with the listeners of The Exploding Banana? Absolutely. This is uh, this is about hubris. It's about life finding a way. So it very much ties in with with Jurassic World. So Comic Con a few years ago, Nick was flying out to join us at Comic Con. A few of us were already in San Diego. We were on the ground, the troops setting up already. We we're in a hotel in San Diego. Nick is flying out from London and uh, gets to the airport, and you get upgraded. Is that right? You got upgraded from, you were a premium economy, and you got upgraded. It's just random. Sometimes it happens. You just get upgraded, and you got upgraded to business. And you thought, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I will go to the lounge, because lounge access happens with when you get a business class flight. So you went to the lounge, <laughs> and you were so relaxed uh, that you put your headphones on. Yep. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Nick, you missed your flight departure announcement? I did. Okay. I did. And and therefore missed your flight. Uh, yeah, absolutely. My suitcase was on the plane. Your suitcase was already on the plane, and this was a direct flight to San Diego. Uh, am I right in saying that? Who knows? I, I believe I'm right in saying that. So, you realise your mistake. The airline is gracious, and they decide to put you on to another flight, to a later flight. But this later flight has to arrive through Chicago. So, by the time you arrive in San Diego, it's the next day, and you've been in the air for about... 21 hours, something like that, thereabouts. Yep. And, and when you get to San Diego, it turns out that your suitcase hasn't arrived. Uh, they have lost it. Uh, somehow something's gone awry and your suitcase has not arrived. And so your first day with us in the hotel, you spend on the floor of the hotel because you know we couldn't afford three beds. And uh, so you're sleeping on the, on the floor uh, in a makeshift duvet and you don't have any clothes. Or, Such a long version or of the story. Okay? I would have told a two-sentence version would, of the story. So it's the war and peace. The next day, the preview day of Comic Con, you get a note that your bag has arrived. Mm-hmm. So I drive you to San Diego Airport. Mm-hmm. We pick up your suitcase, get back to the hotel. Everything is fine. We and you open your suitcase, <laughs> and what do we find? We find that somehow a banana <laughs> has exploded all over your luggage at thirty-five thousand feet. Why, Nick, has a banana exploded over your luggage at thirty-five thousand feet, covering your clothes and everything in in 
shredded banana. I'd like to say that it was because a dastardly villain inserted the banana into my suitcase, but actually it was me. <laughs> I put a banana in my suitcase. I don't know why. Did you think your clothes were going to get hungry on the, on the way? I don't know. What was, what was the deal there? I don't know. <laughs> I just thought I'd like to have a banana later. I'm not going to have it now. And bananas explode in the air. Who knew? Yeah. They should have signs up in the airport that have sort of, you know, the red stripe yeah. through the banana symbol. Yeah, they should. They because should. It's a real danger. Bananas anyway, my clothes were all covered in banana. Yeah. It didn't smell particularly good no. for the duration of that Comic-Con. That wasn't the best go. Comic-Con, but... No, but it was fun. I'm sure yeah. we saw great, yeah, great yeah, yeah. things. Anyway. Worst dinosaur movie. Uh, yeah. No, we haven't worst, even finished worst. with Edmund yet. So oh, Edmund right. yeah. is uh, so Edmund is he's he's seen the mosasaur and then he is traumatized by the offense of of the park where the dinosaurs get out and they try and kill everyone. And so does this give him an enmity towards dinosaurs? Why does he? Yeah, want his jeans to- his jeans are wet. He's just found a banana <laughs> has exploded in his um, in his luggage um, the, on the way to Isla Nublar, uh, and he's he snaps. He, you know, everyone has their limits. Yeah. Edmund's no exception, and he decides to uh, you know sell dinosaurs to the highest bidder and work for Toby Jones and I, I would have that I think I better. would have been pretty good in that part it would have been better it would have been better and he uh, might you know, yeah and who knows you might have you might have emulated me in Hostel Part 2 and I don't know got a credit at the end you know when the cast list goes up and there's your a, name I have a credit in a film's credits but it is Tomb Raider 2 Cradle of Life wait a second <laughs> the game changer <laughs> what I worked on Tomb Raider 2 Cradle uh-huh. of Life okay hang on and Keep uh, I have a credit in the film uh, didn't particularly want it, but I've got. <laughs> I don't think anyone in that film wanted no. it. Ultimately, and I uh, took a mug of tea to Chris Barry on that set. It was very exciting. Was he gr- grateful for the mug of tea? Did he throw it back in your face? I think he was pretty pleasant about it. Wow. Okay. So uh, I'm, I, I've gone the other way. I should have typed in Nick Dissemblian instead. I've typed in. Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, Cradle of Life, which means I have to go through the entire cast and crew. Uh, there you are, editorial assistant, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider. <laughs> Your IMDb page yep. says Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, editorial assistant, 2003. And yep. then 12 years later, yep. Jurassic World, Edmund, uncredited. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say I did not add that? I've been asked by lots of people if I've added that. I haven't added that. Oh, that's amazing. But, um,. I'm happy that, that it's been recognised. Uh, so the question is about dinosaurs in movies. What, what are the worst movie dinosaurs in movies? With a dinosaur in it? I mean, is the answer Theodore Rex? So that's the one in which Whoopi Goldberg is a cop who teams yeah. up with a tyrannosaur yeah. to solve crimes <laughs> in the homicide department. I mean, actually, it sounds like the best movie with dinosaurs I, it in it. It has got a great poster. But isn't the T Rex is the same size as Whoopi Goldberg, which is I th- confusing? No, I think slightly taller, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is key. How big is... Either Whoopi Goldberg's massive or this T-Rex is really small, one of the two. This, this feels like a film that I might have forced Simon Crook, uh, our colleague Simon Crook, to watch. So I used to do the Hayment um, section of the magazine and make Simon watch all kinds of rubbish, including Garfield, Pet Force 3D. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the T-Rex is, is only marginally taller than Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. And it's wearing sneakers and a yeah. red jacket. I mean, it looks like a... a- prop from the dinosaurs tv show right which was like a knockoff of the simpsons mm. so it could well be very much the father dinosaur from that based on the look of the the theodore rex is he a t-rex or is it is a theodore rex a its own dinosaur i don't know i don't know i, I don't, don't know, know. Um, i just don't know a theodorosaurus that's a that's a very good shout you may have nailed it right off the bat i mean there are, there are terrible terrible films featuring dinosaurs like carnosaur and it's, mm-hmm. it's sequels, uh, which I don't recommend that you watch. There is, oh, what's another terrible film? Valley of the Guanji? Or is it Valley no, of Guanji? Valley of Guanji's good. No, it's terrible. It's we good. Have, we have that on our UV. 
was exciting. Uh, there's obviously the likes of One Million Years BC, which is okay. It's not brilliant. Uh, Land of the Lost, the Will Ferrell comedy a few years oh, ago. Oh, that's dreadful. So that. Uh, the Flintstones had dinosaurs in it. That's terrible. Barney's Great Adventure has dinosaurs in it. There's loads of movies here I have never heard of. I'm just looking at a list here on, on Twitter. Dinosaurus, Raptor Ranch, Tammy and the T-Rex, which sounds like it's not a family-friendly film, but... Uh, who knows? What about the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas? That's pretty... Is that worse than the original? That's the worse than the original. Yeah. I, I, it has Mark Addy instead of John Goodman. Oh. And it has Stephen Baldwin instead of Rick Moranis. Oh, that's a downgrade. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. I don't, think, I don't think it's even a Steven Spielrock production. <laughs> as the original is in one of the greatest opening credits. Oh I mean, it's God. just a pun that doesn't work on any sort of level, really. <laughs> Steven Spielrock. So right. Berg is mountain in German, right? Is that where they is that where they went there? I don't know. Is that is that the is that the origin of that pun? And they go to see Tar Wars at the drive in. Right, okay, yeah. <laughs> but I can see. I yeah. can get that. I can get behind that. Yeah, that's good. That's I mean good. I don't know a lot about the Land Before Time franchise beyond the first one. So I've seen the mm. first one, but I don't know. Does it does it get worse? Progressively worse? Does it? I think, by the, the I think by the level? time you get to the Land Before Time 11, Invasion of the Tiny Sauruses, it's probably running out of juice. <laughs> There's uh, 14 of those films. Wow. Are there really? 14. Wow. And presumably they're still going then, right? Uh, the last one was out in 2016. So there still may going. well be more to come. I think it's a going concern. I don't think there's any sign that they're wrapping up. Well, when they're so popular, why mm. would you? Yeah. 14 of those films. Wow. So there we go. I think, I think Johnny nailed it with Theodore Rex. That's a... Uh, I went too soon with it then, didn't I? We should have built to it. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's a, it's a good call. A good call indeed. So there you go. Theodore Rex, and I hope we have answered that question to Reese L. Griff's satisfaction. If you want to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast, you can do so via a number of methods. We are on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast or we won't see it. Uh, we're on Facebook as well as Empire Magazine, and we're on email podcast at empireonline.com. Uh, time now to talk about this week's movie news. And I tell you what, guys, while you were coming over here, making your way over here from Camden, the internet exploded. Yeah, that noise you can hear is the internet exploding because out of the blue, without a word of warning, Patty Jenkins, director of Wonder Woman, released the first picture from Wonder Woman 2. She confirmed that the title of the film is actually Wonder Woman 1984, which is great because it gives people the chance to do the oh I haven't seen the numbers two to a hundred <laughs> and a thousand and yeah. ninety. Yeah, it's really good that yeah. one. Got a lot, of, got a lot to catch up on. That genuinely was a joke I was going to make, Johnny, but that's fine. Oh, uh, sorry. And and then of course she also released, as, as I said, the first picture from the movie, and the first picture has blown people's minds because the first picture is of Chris Pine as Steve Trevor. Looking confused what? in 1984. Now, don't get me wrong, Chris, but didn't he die? Well, Johnny, we never saw a corpse. But uh, yes, uh, this is a Wonder Woman spoiler special, by the way. Uh, Steve Trevor, played by Chris Pine, dies at the end of Wonder Woman. Uh, and uh, we thought that was it. We thought he was a one and done. Chris Pine was a one and done in the DC Extended Universe. But no, he is back and he looks very confused about it and not entirely sure what the hell is going on and uh, it could be Steve Trevor the third it could be just a long line of people who look exactly like Chris Pine in the Steve Trevor family but I think somehow through some jiggery pokery he is back and he's looking very very confused now you could say of course that this is you know slightly contrived 
But I think the Slightly. chemistry, the chemistry between the two of them, was was so potent in the first film uh, that he would he would be such a miss in this one. Uh, so I'm very glad to see him back and see how they handle that as well. I love the first Wonder Woman, and I'm very excited about this. I think Wonder Woman 1984 is a really gloriously stupid title, <laughs> and I'm I'm on board with that. What about you guys? Are you excited by Chris Pine returning as Steve Trevor? I understand why they brought him back, right? Because she has been. You know, put up alongside uh, Ben Affleck as her leading man, and that didn't quite sizzle as potentially they hoped it would do. In terms of the franchise, I mean, it's too early to judge because we don't know why he's back. But the 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 one real concern you'll have is that I hope it doesn't undermine anything that um, Wonder Woman did, and because obviously it has the book ending parts as well, where you mm-hmm. know you feel that there's almost a feeling that she is still mourning that loss a little bit. Yeah, I mean, she has a whole bit in Justice League where she kicks off with Bruce Wayne because he has a dig at Steve Trevor and it's clear that the loss is still very fresh for her even though it happened like 80 years ago. Get yeah. over it. Um, but maybe, maybe... But 80 years is not as long for her as it is for us. No, it's like a blink of an eye. Yeah. Uh, but maybe Steve Trevor just keeps showing up in all her solo movies and keeps dying at the end of them. Yeah, but so maybe, she's, she's... Maybe, she, maybe that's why she's so, um, she's so hurt by it still, yeah. because it only happened last week for 30, her. 30 years like, ago. He died for the 46th time in front of her just a week before, and she's very sore Right, about okay, it. yeah, just before that bank job yeah. at the start of the movie. Yeah. Oh my God, they killed Steve Trevor, should be the, the catchphrase of this, of this new, new franchise. Right, anyway, that's enough, that's enough of that Wonder Woman 1984 shenanigans. Uh, what else has been happening in the world of the world? Any movie news that we're excited about? I'm, ex- I'm very excited. The big news for me this week is the Arachnophobia reboot. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not being ironic. I genuinely love Arachnophobia. Uh, Frank Marshall, obviously famous, very famous for producing lots of big films. And I think it's ruddy awesome. Um, I love it. Obviously, uh, the, it was done with a lot of practical effects. When was it? When was it made? The original nineteen ninety. Like was it nineteen ninety? Um, I mean, feel free to check that, but it's right. John Goodman in one of his most iconic roles as uh, Dan from Roseanne as the exterminator. Can you remember his name? Nope. Jasper. Dell. Dell. Sounds like a de- feel, feel like it's a Dell. There's a Dell. I just remember he says, "Take out bad wood, put in good wood." Um, it's a great, it's a great film, and I always remember the really creepy scenes where there's a spider in someone's slipper, and the spider in the shower. It's really cool. I'm excited about this um, as long as they don't use too much CG, which they probably will. Depends what it is. It was James Wan's going to produce, so maybe this is going to be Blumhousey in terms of its approach, in terms of the budget level. Um, I think no one's scared of CG, right? No one's scared of CG, but people are scared of the real thing. And there are moments in arachnophobia where, even though they're not venomous spiders, you know, well, at least I hope I hope they're not. You know, the, the actors are covered in spiders and they're interacting with spiders, and that's fun. Can you name Julian uh, Sands' character? Professor... Yes, we're doing well. Jonathan Creepy... Creepy uh, hair. (laughs) He's got quite creepy hair in that. I love the spiders. They are great. I have under this glass dish. Ah, you must save me a sample of the spider, says (laughs) Dr. James Atherton. The venom is in their sacks. Um, Dr. what? (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Dr. James Atherton. Atherton. I've got a hot Julian Sands fact for you. All right, so he appeared in the hit motion picture Silent S uh, Walk Like a Panther earlier this mm-hmm. year 
uh, that was shot in a Yorkshire village Ooh. called Marsden? I want to say Marsden. Anyway, turns out that's where Julian Sands is actually from. So don't be fooled by the cut glass accent. He's actually from Yorkshire, born and bred, and can turn on the accent as and when it suits him. But... More to the point, his brother owns a chippy in that very, very same town, and so they would frequently go down and they would have fish and chips, courtesy of Julian Sands' brother. There you go. That's my Julian Sands That's a terrific fact. Cur- fact. Courtesy of, they got free fish and chips. Well, no, I assume they paid for it. Just guessing, yep, just guessing. Enough. Anyway, yeah, but uh, I know the Twitter was up in arms about this Arachnophobia remake, but uh, James Wan is a good egg, and I'm hopeful that he will be respectful of the source material whilst also bringing his very own brand of scary yucks to it. And speaking of scary yucks, trailer came out this week for... Dumbo. <laughs> Dumbo. Should we talk about Dumbo first? Let's talk about Oh, was Dumbo it not Dumbo? First. No, it was something else, but that's fine. Dumbo. Dumbo, Dumbo, Dumbo. Dumbo came out this week. The trailer for Tim Burton's Dumbo. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited. I, I think... Amazingly, Disney have got three um, sort of live-action adaptations of of uh, some of their most famous animations coming out next year. So the, the one I'm most excited about is Lion King. I think that's probably true of most people. Uh, this is the one I'm second most excited about. And then there's Guy Ritchie's Aladdin, which I'm a little bit confused about. Um, but we obviously haven't seen anything from that. Dumbo, it feels like a really good match of director to subject matter. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a, a tale set in a circus feels right up Tim Burton Street. He's got Danny DeVito as a, a kind of ringmaster, yep. right, which feels like yeah. you know, none more Burton. Feels good, yep. Um, Michael Keaton? Keaton is in it as he's kind of... Who is he playing? Is he kind of the animal trainer? I don't know. He, he looked quite well off and quite benevolent. So yeah. I imagine he's... he's like I don't really have a, yeah. a strong knowledge of or affinity for the original. So this is not actually a remake, I don't think. I think there's no, a bit I mean, of overlap there are... with the story, but it, this is pushing the story on from where the original cartoon, yeah, I mean, which is very, very car- short. The cartoon doesn't have anywhere near the amount of human characters that appear to be from that trailer. Is this a sequel, almost? Yeah, it's... I think so. Oh, that's cool. That's interesting. So. Yeah, It looks pretty cool. Photorealistic CG yeah. elephant, as far as I can see. I mean, I think the elephant looks great. I think the design of the elephant, because everything looks really real except for the eye. I mean, I think it's designed that way, right? But the eyes look all big and uh, anime style, Mm. if you see what I mean. So I think they've... Because obviously you don't want it to look too real because there's no emotion in a a real elephant in the same way that you would get from a completely CGI character, but it doesn't look so far that it looks fake alongside everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. So I'm on board for the elephant. Bring it on. We are fully on board for the elephant, and Dumbo looks good We're all excited about that. Yeah. But the trailer I was referring to was the teaser trailer for Karen Hardy's The Nun, which is the latest, and it says here, the darkest chapter of the Conjuring universe. Now, have you guys seen this yet? I have not. You haven't seen it yet? Okay. Have you seen it? No. So I'm going to watch it right now, and uh, you're going to get a live reaction on the podcast. It's very exciting. You excited? This is just well, great I mean, podcasting. But this we're in, in pretty much as much in the dark as they are, because <laughs> the screen is turned away from us. Well, you get to see my face, won't you? Yeah, okay, we get that. It's uh, the gift that keeps on giving. All right, so this is the nun, and this is uh, the, the, the scary nun character played by Bonnie Ahrens, who also played... Do you know who Bonnie Ahrens played, famously? The, um, no. the bum at the back of the diner in Mulholland Drive. Ah. So there you go. So she's back again. It's a scary nun. Oh, wait, oh, make sure you watch to the end. Oh, it says... Ah! <laughs> Jesus Christ! I've turned the sound down so it doesn't... Oh, Lord. So there's a scary nun. There she is. I'm going to turn the sound back up again. Oh, no. Ah! Can you see that? I saw a nun. She saw a nun. Before the conjuring. 
Damon Bashir, the darkest chapter was born. God ends here. On September 7th. She's got a very nice wimple. It's only 38 seconds to go. There she is. Ah! There's a nun behind her. There's an evil nun. There's a good nun. And there's the evil nun. And then the evil nun is walking behind her. Oh, Jesus. Oh, no. Jesus. Get out of there! No. No. Oh, no. Ah! All right, okay, that was... um, It's uh, the tagline is pray for forgiveness. That was a good scare at the end. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed putting my pants live in the podcast. That was fun. This is now the Empire Poocast. Thank you, Chris. Always here. What do you think of that? Uh, it was hard to see it from over here when you yeah, had the screen away. It was good. But it sounded fantastic. Did you like that scare at the end where the nun was being followed by the evil nun? She turns around to say hello to the evil nun. <laughs> I don't know why she say hello. Hello! <laughs> and then the evil nun appears out of like the other Ooh. part of the frame. They're always doing that, evil nuns. Yeah, uh, it looks good. I'm, I'm very much on board for that. And uh, we didn't talk about the Halloween trailer. The Halloween trailer no. debuted after we recorded the podcast last week, uh, which is the David Gordon Green and Danny McBride-driven reboot sequel we don't really know what it is yeah, but I'm really unclear of what 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 counts does H2O count now or not it doesn't seem to so this is uh this is it appears to be wiping out from continuity everything bar halloween so it has Jimmy Lee Curtis back as Laurie Strode and it appears to be just wiping away the offense of Halloween 2 where Michael Myers was revealed to be her brother and he went on a much larger killing spree so that's all been retconned out of existence and I mean, do people not like any of those Halloweens I mean is that not a disservice to fans people have a, an affection for Halloween 2 they have an affection for Halloween H2O certainly Halloween 3 which is unrelated to Michael Myers is Season of the Witch Season of the there's Witch there's a little nod to that in fantastic. this trailer there is you we're, can we're see a glimpse of uh, some people wearing um, masks from Silver Shamrock masks from Season of the Witch very exciting um, but yeah I thought that was a really good trailer I kind of wish it had stopped about a minute in, because I love the first minute, and then I think they give away a little bit too much. I think so as well. They give away some... Some, what some, if, of, the, they, some of the scares, yeah. They appear to give away some of the scares and some of the kills as well. I thought the first minute is where they go to the asylum and meet him for the first time. All that stuff with the, the creepy kind of checkerboard yeah. uh, courtyard. I thought that was fantastic. It's yeah, that is really creepy, right? Even if it's in bright sunshine, which you don't yeah. really usually yeah. associate with creepiness. Yeah. Very creepy. Super creepy. There's very exciting news. You must be excited about this, Chris. Sam uh-huh. Raimi is coming back. Oh! With a film entitled Bermuda Triangle. Oh, mate, it's disappeared. <laughs> it's, it's already disappeared. Oh, well, that was good while it lasted. <laughs> yeah, but it's a shame. He has not made a film since Oz the Great and Powerful? Uh, yep, that is correct. And I've been waiting for him to direct something since. He's been attached to loads of stuff, including Warcraft and a Jack Ryan movie and all sorts of stuff. So yeah. what, what is this about? So rumour has it that this film uh, is kind of an Indiana Jones-style adventure movie, um, stroke horror, and a big submarine with nukes on it goes missing in the Bermuda Triangle, so a team uh, are sent in to find it. Apparently, this is not official, but there are rumours, <laughs> that apparently they may uh, sort of encounter... Vikings, Nazis, sharks, <laughs> and other things that have been lost in the Bermuda Triangle over, over ages. They're all still 
alive. That sounds cool. And, uh, and Ryan Reynolds is muted to potentially be the star of that. Really? And I am hugely on board. Shark, they had me at Sharks, Nazis and Vikings in the single sentence. You're on board as well. Is Edmund going to be part of this? <laughs> That's where he was. We're in talks. <laughs> We're in talks. Is he's auctioning off Nazis and sharks and zombies and all sorts. Yeah, with wet, uh, wet trousers. I'm excited. Is this an original project? Because I know Brian Singer was attached to something called Bermuda Triangle years ago as well, and that <laughs> disappeared too. Is this the same project or is this something new? I'd love to be able to tell you. This is a dangerous film. If they shoot on location, they better have insurance. You know, mm. they might not be coming back. But... Speaking of things that are coming back, this is exciting. It Chapter 2 seems to have completed the casting of the Losers Club. So, you excited about this, guys? You liked the first movie, didn't you? I really loved the first movie, but then I really, really loved the, the earlier part of the TV movie as well, or miniseries. Um, and the second half is just not as interesting. So, yes, I, yeah. so I, I really want to see it. I really hope they do um, do the first movie justice. But I, I, I think they've got a, a, an uphill battle to do so. If that's, is that yeah, no, fair? Is that fair? Is that's, that fair? That's fair. That's fair. But it's, it's a good cast, isn't it? It's a really good cast. Yeah, so really we, good. We, we knew that James McAvoy's on board already. Bill Hader, Jessica Chastain, Jay Ryan, James Ranson, Andy Bean. But the cast has been complete, or the main cast has been complete. Uh, Asaya Mustafa has joined the film, and he is going to play Mike Hanlon, who was played by Josen Jacobs in the first film. And you might know him best. I think probably in this country he's probably best known as the Old Spice spokesman. So he's the guy with a really, really distinctive voice in the Old Spice uh, commercials. Love those. I'm very excited about this. It feels like they've taken their time with it as well. They didn't just rush it, rush into production. Yeah. Which makes me hope that they've really nailed the script. The cast is really interesting, I think. You know, you've got a couple of real A-listers in there with McAvoy and Chastain. You've got Bill Hader, who can do no wrong. Uh, If you're not watching Barry already, you should be watching Barry, his TV series for HBO. Um, And the dude from Old Spice ads. So uh, I I can't wait for this. It's definitely one of the ones I'm most excited about. Absolutely. Bagsy the surface, is it? Damn it. Absolutely it's too late. not. It's too late. Universal law of Bagsy, mate. It's happened. Don't worry, I'll send you a postcard from the set of It Chapter 2. It'll be fun. It'll be in the shape of an exploding banana. <laughs> You'll you, love Chris. it. All right, it's time for a bit of shameless plugging. It is time to talk about this month's new issue of Empire Magazine. Very, very exciting stuff on sale now in all good and evil news agents, of course. And on the cover, we have. Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is the latest in the... Let me just see if I'm getting this right. Marvel Cinematic Universe, is that right? Never heard of it. Spot on. I can't help you with that. Spot on. Okay, so um, this is just a a silly kids film uh, that I presume is a sequel to another silly kids film. So why should I care about it? I don't really care. But uh, if you do care about that sort of childish nonsense, then you can read about it inside. Someone interviewed Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly. It was me. It was me. I can't keep up this pretense, guys. I just love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I was completely fooled. I am on board for this movie. Were you fooled? I was fooled. I was was on the edge of my seat. I didn't know what was happening. (laughs) This is the sequel, of course, to the 2015 movie Ant-Man and Not the Wasp. And uh, this time, Paul Rudd will team up with Evangeline Lilly. She's been given the suit. And uh, I spoke to them both about that and about all sorts of other things, but mainly that. And you got cut off. I got cut off, and it becomes a hilarious part of the feature. 
That's so good. Um, and uh, apologies if you are in any way allergic to my writing or to me generally, which would make listening to this podcast a little bit unbearable for you because I also wrote a number of things for this issue. I spoke to Christopher McQuarrie, the writer and director of Mission Impossible Fallout, for the lowdown on his long friendship and creative partnership with Thomas Cruise, Matt Puther IV, uh, ahead of Mission Impossible Fallout. And that's a cool thing as well. There's also, uh, I, I also went to L.A. That's why I was away from the podcast recently, because I was in L.A. talking to Simon Pegg for our big interview. And this is a really interesting interview. Um, I think it took turns that neither Simon nor I anticipated, uh, I think it's fair to say, as we sat down. It's a very frank interview. It's a very humble interview as well. And there are some... Simon makes some revelations uh, about his mental health which over the years, which which really surprised me. And uh, he's faced up to them with great fortitude and courage. And uh, so check that out. It's a really interesting interview. Taking myself out of it, uh, his answers are for good. My questions are shambolic as usual, <laughs> but his, his answers are great. There uh, was an exploding banana halfway There was, well. yeah. <laughs> uh, Nick uh, interviewed Drew Pierce. Uh, about his new film, Hotel Artemis, the writer of Iron Man 3, co-writer of Iron Man 3, of course. And he's making his directorial debut with Hotel Artemis, which has already opened in the States and set in a futuristic hotel. And so Nick went room by room with him. We continue our regular series where a director talks to another director about a film that meant a lot to them. And this time it is Neil Marshall, the director of next year's Hellboy movie. And of course, The Descent and Dog Soldiers. And he talks to Matthew Robbins, who is the man who directed Dragon Slayer. So if you love dragons and you love slaying them, that is a feature for you. There's a lovely connection there because obviously Neil has done quite a lot of Game of Thrones and uh, yes. the Game of Thrones books by George R. R. Martin have several references to the dragon from uh, Dragon Slayer in it. Such a fan is he. Wow. So hashtag dragon stuff. We don't just throw this shit together, etc., etc., etc. Also in the feature section, it's a really great feature section this month, despite my intervention. We have a report from the set of Sicario 2, Soldado... I'm really getting confused with the title of this movie. Is it now just called Sicario 2, Soldado? Because yes. in the States, it's Day of the Soldado, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, but okay, fair enough. And uh, so that's a really interesting report. And then we have an excerpt from David Lynch's forthcoming autobiography. I mean, I prefer to say that he wrote a piece for us. Um, I mean, it's out before the book. So I think maybe we can say that. Uh, David Lynch <laughs> writes exclusively <laughs> for Empire. I am writing exclusively for Empire. I'm sure there is a parallel dimension in which Twin Peaks style, in which that's true. Well, then that counts then. Which makes you Dougie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pretend I understood that. Nick, as a a person who brokered this, what's it about? So, um, yeah, we went through David Lynch's new book, which is, as you would expect, pretty wild and eccentric, and he goes off on weird segues about types of beetle that he likes, and... um, (laughs) just all kinds of random things Uh, there were so many excerpts that we could have asked for but we decided to pick uh, him and his memories of making The Elephant Man Mm -hmm. which was his second film so he had made a razor head um, which took him years and years and he had no budget to do it Uh, it was a success and so he made this studio film The Elephant Man Mm -hmm. and it was uh, a bit of an ordeal Mm-hmm. Um, it came out really well. Obviously, it's a classic, mm-hmm. but um, he got yelled at by Anthony Hopkins, and they had trouble with the prosthetics, and it was uh, traumatic for him. But he writes about it very entertainingly. 
and all the all the juicy stories are in there. There's lots of great stuff inside the issue as well. Uh, in the news section preview, we have exclusive images from the likes of The Predator and Phenom and Girl in the Spider's Web. And we interview Hannah John Kamen. And we have the very first look at uh, Drew Goddard's Bad Times at the El Royale, which looks like a lot of fun. I also sat down with Matthew Fawn and he makes a very special announcement in this month's issue of Empire that he is launching his own studio. He is upgrading Marv Films, his production company, into a British-based studio that he hopes will become a haven for upcoming young, exciting talent as well. And he told us the films that he will be using to launch that studio. And it's exciting stuff. So obviously we've got Rocket Man, the Taron Egerton, Dexter Fletcher movie that Taron Egerton talked about on our live podcast uh, a few months ago. Uh, there's also the expansion of the Kingsman franchise with uh, a, a prequel, I guess, called Kingsman The Great Game, which will be set in the early 20th century and will come with an eight-episode TV series at the same time, which is exciting. Uh, there's also going to be Kingsman 3, and he talked about rebooting Kick-Ass and Hit-Girl as well, possibly with Chloe Moretz as an older maybe not wiser, hit girl. So exciting stuff to see someone making moves and waves in the British film industry like that, I think. Do you think he'll help us make our film upgrade? (laughs) (laughs) Colon landing pattern with Carl Weathers? Oh, come on, man. How can you forget this? It's been in development a long time. It's upgrade two, colon, holding pattern, colon, unlandable with Carl Weathers. That's the full title. That's the full title. Okay. And in case people have come in late to the Empire podcast and they aren't sure what this film is, a very, very quick pitch. Okay, so loads of people are on a plane. The plane is in a storm. On that plane is an evil wizard who casts a spell which turns everybody in economy into zombies, everybody in premium economy, or World Traffic Plus, other other airline (laughs) cabin choices are available, uh, into vampires. No, sorry, werewolves. Got it wrong. And everybody in business class into vampires, okay? Except for our hero, who's not played by Carl Weathers, we'll get that in a second, except for our hero, who has been upgraded at the last minute, a bit like Nick Decemlian, yep. before he missed his flight to San Diego. I think he was inspired by that flight. I think it might have been, actually. And he, uh, because he's upgraded from economy to premium economy, he becomes a zombie werewolf. And so he has the ability to fight back at the vampires who are obviously the, the pricks of this movie and they're trying to take everyone over and fly the plane and land a plane and, and take over the world. He is helped in his struggle by Carl Weathers. He's playing himself. He's playing himself as the pilot. And because he's a pilot he is immune to the evil wizard's spell. Yeah. And this is also coming with an eight episode TV series. <laughs> Just to explain, just yes. to explain some of yes. the things in that synopsis that yeah. need a lot of exposition. Each episode is 45 minutes of me explaining to camera what you've just seen in the film. So Matthew Vaughan is making this? Matthew, he doesn't know he is, but yes, Matthew Vaughan is, is making this. I'm, it's exciting times for the British <laughs> film industry. I will, I will make this happen. So there you go. If you want to know more about that, then pick up future issues of Empire Magazine. For the time being, pick up the one that's on sale right now. As of Thursday, June 14th? This is the 15th. So pick it up right now. All good and evil news agents and also available on the iPad. Okay, as you know, this week's podcast is sponsored once again by Sky Cinema, which gives you unlimited access to the best movies at home, whenever and wherever you want in the best possible way. For example, if you're going on a plane, like I am, maybe next week, 
then Sky Cinema is a lifesaver. I've been a subscriber to Sky Cinema for many years now. I love the choice they offer. They've got over a thousand quality movies on demand, ready for me to enjoy whenever I want, and they refresh those movies constantly. My first recommendation this week is The Incredibles, which is Brad Bird's incredible, yes, mind the pun, Pixar film, which explores the trials and tribulations of a family of superheroes now living a glum, drab, domestic life until the dad, Bob Parr, a.k.a. Mr. Incredible, gets sucked back in and things kick off from there. Exciting, funny, inventive, with great set pieces and a huge roster of memorable supporting characters, including Samuel L. Jackson as Frozone, and Brad Bird himself as fashion designer Edna Mode. This is a simply wonderful film, and now is the time to catch up with the pars, what with The Incredibles 2 about to hit cinemas. My second recommendation this week is a bunch of recommendations, because I've loved Adam Sandler, genuinely loved Adam Sandler, ever since Happy Gilmore made me laugh like a drain way back in the mid-90s. Since then, he's had his ups and downs on the big screen, he's had his defenders and his detractors, but when he's on form, he's as consistently hilarious for me as any American movie comedian of the last two decades. Uh, Sky Cinema is now dedicating a channel to Sandler, featuring some of his best comedies, including the the off-the-wall, you-don't-mess-with-the-Sohan, the the aforementioned Happy Gilmore, and the sweet romance and great soundtrack of The Wedding Singer. Check them all out on the Adam Sandler channel. And join me next week for more Sky Cinema related fun. Okay, time now for this week's guest. He is a British actor who's been delivering excellent performances on the big screen for nearly 40 years. You'll know him from that thing and that other thing and that other other thing. Uh, But he's a theatre bunny at heart and he's returned to London to grace the West End stage in a revival of the Tony Award winning play Red, which is at the Wyndham's Theatre. This is about the great artist Mark Rothko. Uh, He is, of course, Alfred Molina and he came in well, just a couple of hours ago, actually, to talk about Red, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Sam Raimi, and other things not beginning with R. I had a blast, and I hope you do too. Here's Alfred Molina. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the great Alfred Molina. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Took nice you by to surprise, sir. You were we, 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 you putting something in your pocket. Yes, yeah, so I was leaning away? away from the microphone. I was putting my phone, my phone and my watch away because my watch has got a very loose strap. And if okay. I start gesticulating and it hits like your <laughs> microphone or the tabletop, it'll sound very bizarre. Chaos. Chaos. I'm a professional, right. down, to the, down to my last bone. Uh, how are you, sir? You, you good? I'm very well, thank you. Very nice to be here. Oh, thanks, thanks for, for coming inviting in. me. You're, you're midway through the run of Red at the moment. This yeah, is the I think John the Logan end of Ray. this week marks the exact halfway point. Uh, we, uh, we, op- well, we opened for first preview May 4th. We opened on the 14th of May and uh, we close on the 28th of July. Oh, wow. So okay. anyone listening to this podcast, you've got a few more weeks to go. <laughs> Booking is available. Uh, Booking's available. <laughs> Wyndham's Available theater. for bar mitzvahs, <laughs> weddings and christenings. And this is a play, of course, that you have done before. So yes. I, was, I was going to ask you to assess how you think you're doing at the midway point, you and Alfred Enoch, who, uh, who's also in the play. Two-hander, just, right. just two of you. Yeah, yeah, two Alf- the two Alfreds. The two, the we're two we're Alf- thinking of uh, maybe taking this on tour. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's out, the, the two Alfreds, I always think it sounds like one of those kind of cheesy double acts from the 50s, yeah. you know, sort of halfway down the bill. Yeah. You'll have uh, the two Alfreds, I was, some sort of novelty act. To be honest, I was slightly disappointed it didn't end with a sort of vaudevillian song and dance number. Oh, listen, but that was through no want of trying, believe you me. <laughs> no, it's been interesting doing it the third time round uh, yeah. because we sort of we started at the Donmar in London, a small sort of you know uh, 
off West End Theatre. And uh, norm, the normal route would have been a transfer to the West End and then perhaps Broadway or further on. But um, Ben Brantley, who's the uh, theatre critic for the New York Times, snuck in and wrote a very glowing review, right. which the New York Times printed. And so um, the, the Don Mars producing partners in New York sort of were very excited and said, oh, you've got to come over now, you've got to strike while the iron's hot sort of thing. Mm. And so we bypassed the West End and went straight to Broadway where the play won six Tony Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, then we did it in Los Angeles where it also did very well. And so doing it in the West End became a kind of little bit of unfinished business <laughs> that we thought we ought to you know, rectify. But then mm. things got in the way, like people got busy and, you know, I went off and I did a couple of films and so it kind of got a little, you know, put back on on the back burner, as it were. Mm-hmm. And then last year when uh, Michael was uh, directing Frozen, mm-hmm. um, the Disney musical for Broadway, uh, he and I happened to meet and, and uh, he just sort of said, how do you feel about it? And, and I thought... You know what? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fantastic play. It's the best play I've ever had a chance to do. It's the best role I've ever had. Uh, he's probably the best director I've ever worked <laughs> with. So I, I think I, I kind of feel that it was right to do it again, you know. And uh, it's been very exciting. And each time we've done it, each iteration of the play has had, a, as you say, it's a two-hander. Yeah. And the other role, the role of Ken, who mm. is Mark Rothko's assistant, um, that's been a different actor each time. So when you consider... We're changing the cast. Fifty percent of the cast is different. Yeah. It it means that it's not so much a revival as more of a rediscovery of the play because, you know, Alfred Enoch, who's playing Ken now, he he's bringing his own sensibility, his own energy to the role. He's making it his, and of course, that's very different from the others. And so, mm. as a consequence, I'm reacting differently. So it's yeah. the whole thing is fresh again, and it's, it's really fantastic. Uh, the others, including Eddie Redmayne, who I believe was Eddie first. Redmayne did it originally, yeah. and then, of course, the play made him a star. Uh, Jonathan Groff did it in Los yeah. Angeles, and wow. the play made him a star. Um, I'm still waiting for it to happen to me, but uh, <laughs> I'm happy to kind of, you know, be, be a sort of like... Uh, I'm like a midwife hey. to all these young actors who are none, kind of, you know... None of those guys are on the Empire podcast. That's true. You're that's on the true. Empire podcast. Oh, and guess what I found out the other day? Uh-huh. I mean, you probably know this because you're, you know, steeped in the movie industry, but I found out... <laughs> That me and I think it's Chris Pratt, we're the only two actors that have got three Lego figures dedicated to characters we've played. <laughs> there's there's other actors who have got two. Yeah. I think Harrison Ford's got two. Yeah. But we've got Chris and I have got three. That's amazing. Which we, is kind of like a little bit of a. It's a little bit of a. You know. I mean, it's you know. It's a. It's a trivia. It's a footnote in the history it's of the thing, movie. It's a, it's a pub quiz question, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's yeah. a pub quiz question. Absolutely <laughs> really right. Is. Absolutely right. You know, you've made it when you're either a pub quiz question <laughs> or or a trivial pursuit question. <laughs> Does anybody still play trivial pursuits, or was that a kind of real sort of nineties thing? Uh, I, if I, I I like to bring it out at Christmas, but nobody you, else. Yeah, nobody no else one knows what you do, No one knows yeah. what the hell it is. Which means I can, I can make up my own questions. <laughs> I could just go. Which actor has the most Lego fi- minifigures? Yeah, Alfred Molina, and then they just—they don't know. They don't know. So yeah. it's uh, Satipo from Satipo Raiders. from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, uh, Sheikh Omar from uh, a Prince of Persia, uh-huh. and I—I I think the third one must be. Doc Ock from... I was going to say Diego Rivera. (laughs) (laughs) It's a rather classy Lego figure. It's a niche market, the the, the Latin American painters that that Lego are are, are representing. And then, of course, Mark Rothko is next. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Mark Rothko. That'd be great. Everyone, no one... 
who the heck is this? No, but it's it's it's. Yeah, I, I was I was delighted when I found out. It kind of it really kind of brought a smile to my face. Do you possess any of those figures? No, I don't. No, I don't. So uh, any any Lego employees out there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying, after this, the Lego store is just a short yeah. hop, skip and jump from yeah. the Empire oh, Studio. I'm not going to buy them. They're going to well, they send them to me. Walk in and just point to your face. I'd and say, then hey. just point to the... Say, see, this, <laughs> see this mush? <laughs> <laughs> what have you got in stock? Just prove it to you and you just Actually, go... I'll give them your address so they'll kind of absolutely of inundate your studio. Listen, I am, I am all for it. <laughs> just go in and say things like, I've got the power of the sun in the palm of my hand. And that's all you that, need to say. It, that's that's all you need to say. It. Just, you know, your voice is your passport. <laughs> But uh, I, I watched Red the other day, and I was fascinated by it. And there's a there's a moment when the curtain rises, and everyone's still getting into their seats. And there's a moment where I think you realise, oh, hang on, Alfred Molina's on stage, like 20 minutes before the show was meant to begin. Mm-hmm. And I, I started thinking, what are you thinking about at that point? Because <laughs> I was watching you were you were almost entirely still for the entire time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the the the, the idea was that uh, we wanted to find a way, a kind of sort of tangible way to give the audience a sense of not so much entering a theatre. I mean, everyone knows they're in a theatre. I mean, Mm. no one kind of suspends their disbelief to that extent. But to give them a sense of walking into Mark Rothko's studio. Mm. So, um, you know, the the, the curtain, you know, the safety curtain goes up. I'm there as Rothko looking at one of my paintings. And so the audience hopefully are getting a sense of him and his relationship to the work and you know and that's what he did he did a he, he spent a great deal of time in the sort of semi-darkness looking at his paintings mm-hmm. thinking about them um and and if it, if it helps and i think we hope that it helps to bring the audience into the world in a in a, in a kind of more interesting more effective way rather than just having the curtain go up lights come down and the play starts mm-hmm. that would be uh, it that would feel kind of i think a bit more a bit odd, yeah. You know, a bit more clumsy. Yeah. Whereas this way, when when the lights do start to change, mm-hmm. then of course the audience has already been there. They, they they've, they're already part of the evening, as it were. I think it affects the audience as they walk in. Certainly. I hope so. I hope so. I I, I know that um, when we uh, whenever we've done it, I mean, in the in those twenty twenty five minutes that I sit there, um, I'm I'm sort of thinking about. Um, you know, I, I I run some lines in my head just to kind of keep myself kind of you know. Uh, to get into it, and but I listen to the audience a lot, and I listen to the energy that's coming from the audience because every night is very different. You know, some nights the audience is very, very voluble, very giggly, very noisy. You know, mm. A lot of people talking excitedly, or some nights it's quite, quite quiet. You know, they're rather studious. Mm. You know, and it's, and and oddly enough, it's got nothing to do with the size of the audience. And we've we've played to a couple of matinees where the audience has been like maybe 60-70% capacity okay. and, they've, and they've been incredibly rowdy and other nights when it's absolutely packed and they're sort of really quiet and it, it's because it, audiences take on a kind of collective personality yeah. and and uh, you know and so it's really interesting to hear it and to kind of get a sense of what kind of night it's going to be you know has that been the, the the case from the off back when you did it at the uh, at the Donmar? Well, the, the Donmar stage? was even more revealing because because it was so small. I mean, the Donmar was about two hundred and fifty seats. Yeah, because of the way the, um, the, the, the 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 auditorium is configured on three sides, and no side is deeper than three or four rows. You know, you, you can actually hear individual conversations. Actually, every, this happened every night. One of the seats was obviously missing the little plaque that's got the number of the seat 
because every single night, I swear to you, every single <laughs> night I heard variations <laughs> of this conversation. Do you have 101? Are you 101? No, I'm 103. So where, where, where's 101? Oh, it must be this one then. <laughs> so seat 101, I think, obviously yeah. didn't, have a, didn't have a number on it. Every night I heard that. And you just sit there in silence going, God. Well, so- <laughs> I, kept thinking, I kept thinking, I must remind the front of house manager to put the number back on the seat. <laughs> but I never got around to it. Because the player gets in the way. Then you have to actually, you know, work. You have to do but your... There was, but there was one night I heard, I heard a very posh lady, very posh lady's voice saying, Oh, yes, yes, I have been to this theatre before. Yes, I saw a streetcar named Desire here. That's going to take some beating. <laughs> Beat that, Melina. There is a moment, there's a line in the play that really struck me. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing wildly because you've, you've performed this hundred times. You know the line, I've seen it once, so I'm paraphrasing. But it's something about Rothko says that, uh, that the, the act of creating art only 10% of that is the actual act of creation. The rest that's of it right. is waiting. That's right. And I, that line really struck me because I imagine that is an actor's life yeah. as well. That's right. I mean, he said, yeah, at one point he says, uh, you know, Ken says, are these, referring to the paintings, are these ones done? And he says, they're in process. I have to study them now. And, and then uh, Ken says, study them? Uh-huh. And then Rothko says, yeah, you know, uh, Ten, yeah, didn't they tell you? Uh, didn't anybody teach you that? Ten percent is putting paint on a canvas; the rest is waiting. And it's it's kind of true. I think I, th- I think it's true of of I should think almost any creative endeavor mm. that there's a there's a there are long periods of of waiting, of thinking, of of preparing, and the actual moment itself, the actual moment of creativity you know mm. when 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 the artist finally puts the paint onto the canvas when the dancer finally puts one foot in front of the other when the actor finally opens yeah. his, his or her mouth and says the lines when the actor in front of the camera finally hears action mm. there's a, all kinds of energy and endeavor goes into that moment mm. um and so there is a lot of waiting i mean there's but i think that's that's uh, that's part and parcel of of lots of creative endeavours, you know. Mm. I mean, I remember the first time I ever did a movie, I was amazed at how much time I wasn't working <laughs> or, or what I thought was not working. You know, I would yeah. spend, like, hours, you know, sitting, waiting, you know, on the set, waiting for things to happen, waiting for to be finally called to do my bit, and then my bit would last, like, maybe 20 minutes, and then I'd be done for yeah. another three or four hours. Yeah. And, and, it, and, it, that, and that surprised me. But then, I, of course, I was completely ignorant of the... Uh, you know the, the way that movies were made. I learned very quickly because you you, you were very much a theatre guy, weren't you? you, you... Oh, yeah, I was essentially a theatre actor for you know for years before I made um, Raiders, which was my first movie, and 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 I, I I arrived on the set for Raiders of the Lost Ark, really not knowing anything about. It. I mean, I, I was so green, I was getting notes from the carpenters. You know, they were kind of, yeah. And, and uh, Dougie Slocum, the great uh, cinematographer, Douglas Slocum, was so patient with me because I didn't understand the whole notion of the camera marks, you know, the tape, yeah, the focal yeah. marks. And uh, so I, I just thought that was something to do with the, you know, the, the dolly track or something. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think it was anything to do with me. So I completely ignored them. And uh, I could tell people were kind of, you know, the crews, the, the, cam- the guys behind the camera were getting a little kind of irritated. And obviously, I, because I, they couldn't, you know. And then Dougie, so what a sweet gent he was. He, he just very quietly and didn't embarrass me. He just came from behind the camera, came up to me very quietly, and said, um, uh, "The uh, the marks are 
for you. You know, you're doing such a lovely job and we'd love to have you in focus so we can all enjoy oh, it. Which was such a gentle, sweet way to put it. You know, he didn't kind of shout at me. He didn't sort of like say, hey, you, you know. Mm. Oi, rookie! You know they were, they didn't, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't embarrass me. He just came yeah. very quietly, whispered in my ear, and it was so. I've never forgotten that. Do you remember your first take? Yeah, the first take. I don't think I had any lines. The first take was the scene when I was covered in spiders. Okay. okay. So that was my first day on on the film. We were at Elstree. We did all the interior stuff first, and then we went to Hawaii to shoot all the exteriors. It was my first day on the film. And the first shot of the day, uh, I walked on set. You know, I, I didn't quite know what... I had my script, but I didn't quite know how we were going to do this. And then I saw this guy turn up with two... They looked like suitcases, but they were made of perspex. And each and each suitcase had little compartments. And in each compartment was a little tuft of straw. And under each tuft of straw was a tarantula. <laughs> So this he, this he, this guy's the the spider wrangler, and he's his job is to kind of unload all these tarantulas and put them on me. They might, I can't remember how many there were, maybe I don't know, a couple of dozen. And uh, then I'm standing there, kind of thinking, what the? And then we we start shooting. But the, the idea was that you know Stephen wanted to see them moving, you yeah. know, kind of crawling all over me. Yeah. But they wouldn't move because they were terrified, apparently. And. Uh, the the wrangler said, "Well, they won't move because they're you know the lights they're they're frightened," and so someone said, "Well, what will make them move?" And apparently he said, "Well, if you put a f- if I put a female uh, amongst them, that might get them you oh know." My God. So they he then picked out another tarantula, which was even bigger, and then they all went mad. They were crawling all over, you know, running all that, falling off me, and then of course Harrison is wiping them off me with his whip. You know, to, that that was all in the shot. Of course, yeah, and. Uh, and I just remember when we were rehearsing it, I remember Steven Spielberg sh- saying, look scared, Alfred, look scared. <laughs> and I remember saying something like, I am scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, no wonder you were missing your mark. Uh, no wonder, no wonder. <laughs> but that was my first day on my very first film. It was like a real kind of baptism by fire. Well, at that point, were you thinking, there's not going to be a day two? I'm no, done, no, done. I loved it. I, <laughs> no. I was kind of, I loved it. I kind of... I suddenly, you know, when things like that happen, you suddenly, or at least I did, I can't speak for anyone else, obviously, but I I suddenly fell in love with the magic of films. I suddenly realised what was so brilliantly, what was was possible Mm. with movies, you know. And this was in the days way before CG and, you know, sort of, you know, computer graphics and special effects. I mean, that scene when Harrison gets lowered into the snake pit, that was a real, those were real snakes in a real pit. You know, there was, there was no. Now it'd be like a big green screen on the floor, and you know, everybody, you know, you wouldn't go anywhere near a snake. But in the, you know, the, but they had like all these snakes. You know, they had them kept in a dressing room at Elm Street. You know, the, the, the rumor is that a few of them escaped, and they're still in the walls, apparently. Yeah, that's that's for a colony of snakes. Yeah, some of them run studios now. From, from, <laughs> oh, oh, controversial. <laughs> I can say that. You, yeah. yeah, you can say <laughs> you, I can't. You can't. <laughs> That's right. That sequence, that opening sequence, is one of the great cinematic achievements. Just the way that you say Douglas Slocum sh- shoots it, the way he, you know, the way Spielberg slowly introduces Indy. What are your memories of the rest of that sequence? So as, a, as, as a green actor watching this from... Yeah. I remember it all really vividly because it was, you know, it was the first time I'd done any of this. So I was kind of, and I was, how old was I? 20, 26, something like that. Yeah. 
it was, I just remember it being the most, possibly the most exciting thing, you know, it, it, and and I, I, I just remember it very, very fondly because everybody, everybody was incredibly generous with their time, with their expertise, you know, I, I was never made to feel that I was kind of in the way or the new kid or anything like that. You know, I was, I was treated with a great deal of respect and, and, and people just, it was just very enjoyable. And, and the, it was also towards the end of the shoot. Um, they'd done all the big stuff, you know, in Tunisia and, and France, you know, all the, all the big, you know, it was the last, that last sequence that involved me mm. was probably the last two or three weeks of, okay. of the, uh, of the shoot. I remember that because, um, I, I remember hearing people making, you know, the crew and Spielberg himself kind of discussing pl- ideas and plans for a vacation and all that kind of thing. And I think that some of the crew were planning on staying on in Hawaii for an extra week so they to have their holidays. Uh, I, was, I wasn't able to do that. I had to get back to do a play, but I was okay. kind of, you know, I remember thinking, oh, God, this is the life, you know. <laughs> but I just remember it being really, just really, really exciting. And but what was really ironic, of course, was that that sequence, which is like the first, what, seven or eight minutes of the movie, mm. maybe a bit longer, but it got mined endlessly for trailers and press clips so I was all over the place. So whenever you saw trailers of, of Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was, it was Harrison Ford, one other actor, and me. Because they, they used it endlessly because it had absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Just never, didn't give anything away. Just created this fantastic kind of image of this great adventurer. Yeah. And it was so... Like, I remember getting phone calls, kind of people saying, oh, my God, just saw the trailer for your film. You're all over the place, you know. But it was. I said, "Yeah, well, don't don't go out for a don't go out for an ice cream. You'll miss me." <laughs> yeah. So, what happened when the movie came out? Because obviously, it was a phenomenon. Did you? Did, yeah, but by, by did the it time change it, things for you, it kind of did. But by the time it was released, I was doing a play in the West End. I was doing a, a Dario Fo play at the Criterion Theatre, and I and we all received an invitation to the first official screening um, in London. I think the film had already been released in the states. So I just turned up, you know, kind of really, really excited to see the movie, and and it was just a, a thrill, you know, a real thrill. You know, you you you, it's hard to it's hard to ex- describe the feeling. It, it it it's sort of you see, you see yourself on a big screen, you see all the mistakes you made. I mean, I I I, I remember I look at it now, mm. you know, thirty you know what thirty seven thirty eight years later, yeah. God, I can't believe I just said that. Um, <laughs> I look at it now and I see... What I see now is a very young, very naive, very inexperienced young actor struggling to kind of keep up. That's mm. what I see now. And I, and I see things that I would never do now. You know, you know sort of... I, char- you know, th- I, I did things even in that little tiny little eight-minute performance... That there's stuff there that I think, oh, if I was playing that now, I'd I'd never do that. I would never. Oh, that double take. Oh, that's 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 so awful. That's no, oh, Fred. Yeah, that that would be. T- <laughs> I, I don't see a good performance. Okay, but at the time, I was you know, I was kind of seduced by it, you know, and, and I yeah. and I was, but I was seduced by the whole, the whole kind of craft of filmmaking. Yeah. You know? Well, that's interesting. You you bring that up because obviously with with Red. Uh, you have an opportunity here 
which I think very few actors have been afforded, which is a chance to revisit a role. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily in a sequel, but the same role in the same piece of material. Mm-hmm. And that must be fascinating for you. A, a, a play and a character that you first performed nine years ago, presumably yeah. you, you got the text, what, 2008, something like that? That's I'm guessing. Right, yeah. So 10 years now, we're, we're 10 years yeah. since you first clapped eyes on, on Red. And that experience of revisiting Rothko, have you... Has your performance changed noticeably? Oh yeah, very for you? much so. Yeah, very much. I, I think there there are themes in the play that ten years ago didn't really resonate with me as much as they do now. Uh, the whole notion of one generation of of one generation passing the baton onto the next yep. generation. The notion of the student overtaking the master, mm-hmm. um, the son kind of overtaking the father. All those themes in the play of that shift between one generation and the other. Ten years ago, that, 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 I mean, I was aware of it, but it didn't quite ring. Tr- it didn't sort of, like, ring in my ears the way it does now. And, I mean, there are, there are lines now in the play that I, I feel in a very different way. You know, when at the, towards the end of the play, when Rothko says to Ken, when I was your age, mm-hmm. and he talks about how different things were, that now has a powerful resonance for me that it didn't have ten years ago. Mm. Um, you know, because I'm ten years older, and, you know, and 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 stuff has happened, and and so that you know. But I think that's the wonderful thing about being a being living a creative life or living yeah. a life where you can tell these kind these kind of stories that your your own life, your own experience is both fed and in turn feeds the work you do. The idea of revisiting Roscoe made me think: Is there a character in your film career that you would like to revisit in that same way? Oh, there's loads of them. I mean, there's there's loads of them. I remember when um, uh, this isn't a pitch by any means, uh, but you know, I, I, when when we did uh, Spider Man Two, yeah, and when we shot the scene when um, uh, Otto Octavius kind of finally sinks into the abyss, uh, the day we shot that, um, I I'd signed a contract, you know, where they had an option to do uh, three mm-hmm. with me. So um, I said to the, one of the producers, I said, "So I guess, uh, I guess we won't be doing. I won't be doing number three. <laughs> sort, of, sort of joking. And and I remember he said, he said, uh, "Oh, in this universe, anything can happen." <laughs> so he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't exactly ruling it out. But you know, things have moved on, so that's okay. But it, but I think you know, there's there's loads of parts. I mean, I, I think there's. Um, but more importantly, it's not so much parts that I would love to revisit. It, there are just people I'd love to work with again. Oh, really? Okay. You know, directors and actors who I've had a wonderful time with and, and who I really respect and whose work I admire. And it would be great to kind of, you know, work with those people again and, and, and just uh, stay, you know... I mean, I've been doing um, a few... Uh, over the last few years, I've been doing quite a few small independent films in Los Angeles. And I, mean, I mean, really indie films, like, you know, million dollars and less. You know, it's sort of... Uh, you know, the sort of movies where the craft service table is basically what was on offer at Costco that morning, you know. <laughs> so so you, you go to the craft service table and it's either a big bag of red vines or just a big bag of almonds and that's it, <laughs> you know, depending on what was kind of, you know, what was, what was on, on offer as a bargain. I, well, I, I can't let you uh, leave this room. I can't let you leave this room, actually. <laughs> yes, I'm tied up, everyone. <laughs> I wanted to break it to you. I'm going to be playing Rothko tonight. <laughs> so you just sit here and do the podcast. It'll all be fine. Um, I've, I've got a rough handle on the lines. Fair enough. Well, the state okay. of my throat, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs>
have you missed many performances over no, the years? No, no. The the only time I missed a show, yeah, Touchwood. The only yeah. time I missed a show was when I was in New York, uh, and I, when I was doing Fiddler on the Roof, and uh, I had a, a, a rather severe back injury, and that kept me out of the show for a couple of weeks. Okay, which was misery. Oh, I imagine it must be hell. I mean, people. I, I think people who aren't actors often think that when an actor gets ill or sick or has to miss a show, he or she is kind of secretly relieved and thinking, oh, great. But actually, no, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. <laughs> but uh, because, A, you want to be on stage. Well, A, you it. want to be on stage. You don't let, you, don't, you know, you feel, you feel like you're letting people down. You, yeah. you know, you, you, you're not fulfilling what you promised you'd do. And, yeah. and, and, uh, and, you know, and you're probably in pain. So, you know, there, there's... Um, uh, but it's still, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's sad and it's kind of frustrating. I remember when, after those two weeks, I came back and the first night back, I was so glad to be back, but the first night back, I lost my voice. Oh, my God. Because oh my God. I'd, I'd been lying flat for two weeks and it just had an effect on my vocal cords. So, you know, halfway through the big number, I just kind of, my voice just disappeared. It was awful. But I can't let you leave here without... You mentioned it already, but Spider-Man 2, uh, which is... I'm, I'm a huge Sam Raimi fan. Yeah, uh, me too. A huge fan of that film as well. Uh, probably the politest director in Hollywood, I, I would very, say. Very, yes, very polite, very sweet. Turns up to work in a suit every day. That's mm-hmm. his little homage to um, his hero, Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Um, he was such a gent, a real gent. Uh, never heard him raise his voice. Never heard him badmouth anyone. Or He was delightful, absolutely delightful. And and that you know that was a great another great experience you know it, it's I'd never quite done I'd never played a leading role in a movie quite that big you know the uh, I think from soup to nuts it was about a nine month commitment with a little break in between while they rebuilt certain sets but it was you know the first time I'd worked with such intensity with CGI and special mm. effects and animation and so on. Um, so there was a lot of rehearsal, a lot of prep, you know, especially with the tentacles and the puppeteers who were operating the arms and stuff. So there was a lot of work, but it was just so interesting. It was like to see that side of filmmaking, you know, all the technology, to see it operating, to see it being, you know, utilised and, and, and in a very creative way mm. was uh, absolutely, I found absolutely fascinating. You know, I thought it was brilliant. And, and that was 15, 16 years ago. Yeah, I mean, fourteen years ago, and and that's the technology has has moved forward in leaps and bounds since then. You know, I mean, I, I remember going to um, visiting the what is the visiting one of the sets for the next Avatar, uh, Avatar movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, James Cameron's doing; he's making like three at the same time or yeah, something. Yeah, um, and this and, they, I, and I went to the studio where they're doing all the motion capture. It's like, it's like NASA. I mean, there's a whole wall of the studio. It's just nothing but computer monitors and, you know, like, must be like dozens and dozens of them. Yeah. And they're working it all out. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, mind-boggling, really. I mean, in a, in a way, if you were to do Doc Ock now, uh, it might, you might not have to have that, that harness and you might not have to work with the arms. I mean, the, the fact that the arms are, and the, are animatronic and are for the most part there, and you're interacting with them, and they have their own personalities. That's a lot of the magic behind the film. For me. Oh, absolutely. And and also, it's interesting to note that the, 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 the puppeteers who operated the arms were all actors. Yeah. So they were giving their arms, as it were, you know, the four of them, they were giving them 
personality and 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 they were move you know they they're never still if you, even in the close ups when you see like a piece of the arm behind me or or next to me they were constantly oscillating constantly moving you know that he they gave them these guys were brilliant you know they gave them such a personality and 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 uh, a light. we named them in the end we they all had names and we kind of it was it was brilliant we had a wonderful time working you know that you know doc ock was not just me it was it was me and a whole army of people who were kind of making him live you know if you like and uh, I, I just got to ask about the 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 process that, that got you to roll. Was it a, a long and involved process? Lots of I slept or? with the director, doesn't everyone? Because <laughs> Sam looked exhausted. He, you know. <laughs> no, I auditioned. I auditioned with a. I think uh, I was. On, I think my name was on a list of, you know, a bunch of actors who were kind of you know sort of in in the eye in the public eye at that time and. Uh-huh. I, and I I, uh, I auditioned and, and I went to... It was interesting. I, I, I met with Sam and he he talked to me about the role and, and what was required and did I feel... Was I interested? You know, did, 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 it, was it, did it sound like something I might like to do? And I said, yeah, I'd love to do this. You know, I, was, you know, I, I used to love... I used to read Marvel comics when I was a kid. Um, so I thought, yeah. And then they got in touch and asked if I'd be willing to do a, a screen test. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I turned up, and they made this kind of facsimile of the costume and the arms, and they put me into this rig. And it was just a you know me sort of turning and showing them my profile and then turning the other way and stuff like that, just the usual sort of thing. And then one of the producers who was watching just said, hold on, hold on, and everything stopped. And then he came forward and he gave me his sunglasses and he said, put these on. <laughs> so I put them on, and then we started doing it again. And as we were doing it again, I could see everyone was kind of going, nodding and getting all excited. Oh, yeah, yeah, there you are. Like, so, like they, suddenly saw, they suddenly saw the character somehow, yeah. you know. And that, and that was that point I thought, oh, I might, maybe I'm in with a chance. I, I, might, <laughs> I might be in with a shout here, you know. So were you aware that, you know, okay, I'm down to the final three, now I'm down to the final two, now it's No, no, it wasn't, it, 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 was it wasn't like, like, you know, it, was, it wasn't like, uh, you know, sort of, uh, every, you know, everybody's got talent or whatever it's called, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, wasn't that. Uh, it, no, I, I did the screen test and then I think about a week later, you know, they, 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 they just called and said we'd love to offer him the part, you know, so I was, wow. I was thrilled. You know? oh, I'll think about it. Yeah, that's what I did. That's what. Yeah, I kind of went. I'll get back to uh, you. Yeah, I'm in the middle of my lunch. Uh, do, do you mind calling me back? Yeah, that's exactly what I do, Chris. Spiderman, Spiderman, Spiderman. Is that? No, it doesn't ring a bell. Doesn't ring a bell. And the uh, very last question I will, I will ask you. Uh, I was I was going to say Fred, but I'm not sure if I've earned Fred. Have I earned Fred? Yeah, you can call me Fred. I was going to call Absolutely. Mr. Molina. Absolutely. Mr. Molina. I was, was going to go and be polite. Do I find to the what's very that, end? What's that old joke? There's that old joke. Oh, let's not be formal. Just call me God. <laughs> there is an actor talking. <laughs> Uh, Sam Raimi, by his own admission, is a quite a sadistic fellow. Don't be fooled by the suit and the and the, the polite demeanor. He has tortured Bruce Campbell over the years in, in the Evil Dead movies, throwing sticks at him and poking him in the eye and all sorts of stuff. Uh, how did he treat you? He yeah. didn't do any of that with me. He didn't. He, he was incredibly nice. I, you sound I, regretful. <laughs> yeah, I know. I kind of think, well, maybe I didn't have all his attention. You know, <laughs> I know nothing about their relationship, but I'm sure that uh, I know they're close friends. So I imagine. Yeah, there was a certain amount of uh, you know. I think I think you're allowed to treat your close friends. You are very differently than than people who are you're, you're just kind of like you know associated with. 
but no, he was he was very he was lovely to me and and very helpful and very um, a wonderful director. You know, kind of uh, thoughtful and intelligent and and perceptive and and smart. You know, he I, I had a great time with him. Great Fant- time. Fantastic. Well, I will let you go uh, and enjoy your performance of uh, of Red tonight. Thank you. Thank uh, you. This was fun. Uh, it, it was indeed. It was indeed. Alfred, Fred, Mr. Molina, God, if you will. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thanks Cheers. Very much. Thank you. Okay, so that was Alfred Molina and time now for this week's movie reviews. You can see Alfred Molina in a film this week. You can see him on the Western stage in red. But if you go to a cinema, you can have the bejesus scared out of you by Tony Collette and her castmates in Hereditary, which many people are saying is the scariest film of the year, which is not bad considering we've already had A Quiet Place, which scared the bejesus out of me. And I there were bits of Ladybird that just terrified me. Nick, what did you make of this? It took me two or three days to recover. So um, yeah, it's I'm definitely in the camp of uh, this is a very effective horror film. It's uh, amazingly the first film uh, by this guy called Ari Aster. Mm-hmm. He'd never made anything before, and um, we had an interview with him in the magazine uh, last issue, which where he he talked about the fact he's not particularly a horror fan. Oh, one of those. But he just didn't have much of a budget to work with and he mm. thought, you know, horror, you can you can get away without spending too much money. Mm-hmm. And it's all uh, centred around this family, so it's not a big film by any stretch of the imagination, but it is absolutely terrifying. It's so well done. Right from the first shot, it's hugely unsettling. There's a reason why so many people on, on social media are talking about this film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a film where you don't want to say too much. So much of it is atmosphere, but there's a few big events that happen in this film that I definitely you don't want to know about going mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. but it's uh, a film it kind of reminded me of a bit is Jennifer Kent's The Babadook yep. which came out a few years ago and it's got a similar uh, kind of family dynamic and, and just a sense of just offness to everything the sound design the way it's shot the performances are astonishing just everything is really brilliantly calibrated uh, Tony Collette is the the big star of the film. She's, yeah. she's the central character. So what's it about? Well, well, what happens? Within so, reason, don't tell us like, yeah, don't tell us like major, de- yeah. major deaths and, and revelations and yeah. uh, what, what, what the actual scariness is. So there's a family, uh, Tony Collette plays Annie, the mum, uh, Gabriel Byrne plays the dad, Steve, and then they have uh, two kids, Peter and Charlie, who are kind of teenagers. Mm-hmm. The grandma dies. That's that's really the um, when the movie begins. It's with her already dead. That's the inciting incident. That's the inciting incident. So um, she is basically uh, been recently lowered into the ground. That grave is soon desecrated, um, <gasps> and it becomes clear that there are some very dark family secrets that have been hidden, which start to kind of bubble out uh, to the surface. Mm-hmm. And um, there's something off about. I would say that the Gabriel Byrne's character is fairly kind of centred, but there's something off about the others. And the film basically builds up to this hysterical pitch. I really don't think you want to say anything else. Plot-wise. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair because um, it, it, you know it's it's very much about what's happening to this family and why and and, and what the hell is going to like yeah. what is going to happen. Is it supernatural? Is it is it just natural? That's not something I want to answer. Whoa. That's what? not something I want to answer. You should, even that would be a spoiler. That, that's, that, even that would be a spoiler. I think you, um, it's, uh, uh, for much of the film, that is quite ambivalent deliberately. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, mm-hmm. Whether this is just psychological stuff or whether there's mm-hmm. otherworldly forces. Um, that is answered in the film, but I don't want to say. But yeah, there are, image, there are images from this film that are going to be stuck in my head for a long, long time. Genuinely, it took me, oh, it shook me. Uh, I was shook. 
I, I saw this film in the screen. I saw this film in the screening with Terry, our editor, and it was just the two of us watching it. A security guard came in to the room with five minutes to go for the end. Immediately left. <laughs> like it was, it was actually hilarious. He took one look at the screen and just walked out again immediately as fast as he could. So uh, you obviously then filmed the rest of the movie, right? When he was um, he was gone, you just oh, thought, can I watch the end of it? Yeah, we get out of here. It's on my phone. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank um, you. But no, I mean you d- you don't want to you don't want to pirate this film. Seriously, you want to or, or any <laughs> film. I think we should say not any film. This is an exception. Any film. Any film. I think we're we're fairly safe around with this. Do do not do not pirate any any film. Video piracy is a crime. Do not accept it. Absolutely. But um, there are some films which... Unless you want to really want to see something early. There are some well, films... obviously if you want to see something early. Yeah, yeah, then it's fine. There are some films which are hugely diminished by waiting and watching it on a TV, you know. Yeah. This, Sherlock Gnomes, um, <laughs> you know, just a couple, but... Unlandable. This is an experience. Uh, this is one to just buckle yourself in. And mm-hmm. there were points in this film where I genuinely wanted to leave the room. <laughs> just, to, just to gather myself and... and, and so, because I had no idea where it was going. Okay. So this this is part of the sort of the new wave of jump scare free American yeah. horror that has hit over the last few years with the likes of It Follows and yep. The Witch and The Babadook's not American but it's got the same tone as, as Hereditary shall we say uh, so it's fair to say it won't be for everybody for example this had a horrendous uh, cinema score in the states so cinema <laughs> score is a, a, a company that that talks to people, canvases people as they emerge from the cinema and gets a sort of gauge of word of mouth. And most films get A, A plus, B or so, and that, that indicates that people will, will go to their friends and say, hey, you should check this movie out. You know, this, this little movie called Infinity War and you should go and see it. But uh, Hereditary got like a D plus or a D minus, I can, which basically means that people are coming out of this going, no, no, I don't, can, don't see can, it, Charles. I can absolutely see why it would yeah. not be for everyone. If you go to this film thinking this is an insidious or a conjuring, you know, it's one of those kind of roller coaster ride horrors, which I love as well, which are great, yeah. which are great also. But if you go in expecting that, you are going to have a bad time, maybe, because mm-hmm. uh, this this goes to a this goes to a place of unease. And a place of just making you really physically uncomfortable, and it, it's it's brilliantly done. But definitely, there are going to be some people who are going to hate this film. Yeah, it's because it, I, I know people who went to see The Witch or went to see The Babadook, or it follows based on our recommendation, and just just hated those films because they don't have the trappings of a of a normal horror film. And it's interesting what you were saying about Ari Aster being one of that that sort of brilliant. When, when I said, "Oh, one of those," whenever he said, whenever you said he wasn't, he only made a horror film because. It was financially prudent, and it was the the best. It was it was a genre he could get made. Yeah, I mean, so many people find that right. So many people find that. That's why. That's why Cronenberg, Romero, even Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi only made Evil Dead because it was a movie he could get funded. He wasn't yeah. really a horror guy. Ian Freer wrote about it a couple of issues ago about yeah. that um, phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, then, then there are people like Jordan Peele who are massively into horror films, and they make the horror film as their as their debut or follow up because that's what they really, really want to do. But mm-hmm. there are some people who are just like, no, this is this is a, a, a genre in which I can explore a certain amount of neuroses, in which I can explore a certain amount of thematic ground that I want to want to talk about, and horror will allow me to do that. Uh, but but I, I always have a, an issue with people who go, it's not a horror film, it's a psychological thriller. You know, just It's a horror film. Own the, own the fact that it is a yeah, horror, horror film. Yeah, horror film isn't just one thing. Yeah, just, uh, just own it. But yeah. uh, hopefully Ari Aster has done that. But, uh, but uh, this, yeah. sounds, this sounds absolutely terrific. I haven't seen it yet, and I'm really looking for it. Opens, to, opens tonight. It's, uh, uh, we're record- I'm really confused by my days, because we're recording this a day early. We're recording this on Wednesday, not Thursday. And it's coming out on Friday. So I'm getting very confused. 
but I'm going to go see it tomorrow night, which is yesterday when you listen to this. Thanks for that, Chris. There you go. Um, but yeah, it's full strength stuff. Um, <laughs> in our feature, Ariasta talks about the Sundance screening where there was just a guy at the back of the room just mumbling to himself going, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> nope, not for me. But we say... Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes, for us. yes. Five, five stars. Five times we say yes. Five stars for Hereditary. So do check it out with the career best Tony Collette performance, from what I'm led to believe. Is this correct? Mm-hmm. I, bl- I haven't seen everything she's done. What? Are you I not have, a, co- a Collette completist? I have seen. Uh, what was the one she did with Cameron Diaz? Oh, in her shoes. In her shoes. I have seen that, and it's, That's better, good. it's better than that. It's better than that. It's better than Tony Collette was in her shoes. Praise doesn't come any higher than that. So five stars for Hereditary. And also out this week, out on Monday, in fact, uh, is Ocean's 8, which is a much delayed sequel to the Ocean's movies, Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12, Ocean's 13. But this one doesn't have Steven Soderbergh back behind the camera. He's on board as producer only. And it doesn't have any of the original troupe of thieves and con artists from that trilogy so there's no George Clooney no Brad Pitt no Matt Damon no Elliot Gould no Don Cheadle no Carl Reiner no Ed, I, I can't name them all name them all I can't name them all there's no Bernie Mac there's no Shao Quinn there's no Casey Affleck there's no Scott Kahn there's no uh, is, that, is that 11? I think I've had 11 have I heard Eddie Jemison? There's no Eddie Jemison as Livingston Dell. None of those guys are in this one because this is focusing on the ladies. Uh, the stars Sandra Bullock as Debbie Ocean, Danny's sister, Kate Blanchett as well, Anne Hathaway, Helena Bonham Carter, Aquafina, Rihanna, and Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson, see what I was trying to say. Is that it? That's sure that's seven. There's another one. There's got to be another one. Oh, no, no. And Mindy Kaling as well. There you go. That is Ocean's 8. And uh, Debbie Ocean is Danny Ocean's sister. And she's out of prison after five years of prison. And she has decided to rob the Met Gala, the Met Ball that is held every year at the Metropolitan Museum uh, in New York. So she assembles a crew to try and do that. Johnny. But yes, it, does this live up to the original trilogy? Uh, now, I do love Ocean's 12. I would say that unashamedly, unabashedly, but I, I realise I'm in a minority with that one. But I think most people agree that 11 and 13 are really, really fun, slick pieces of entertainment. Where does this, where does this rank? Well, I think 11 is wonderful. Um, I think I think 13 is fine. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't go out of my way to see it again. The two of us saw it list last night, actually, which is Tuesday night we saw this, and I think I liked it more than you did. Is that fair to say? Uh, no, I liked it. I didn't love it. I mean, I think it was, I thought it was quite fun, quite breezy. I thought a lot of the heist was very well done. Not all of it, I don't think, works. I think it's a very difficult thing as a heist film, actually, to uh, pull off qu- um, well. It, they, the best ones make it look effortless in the way that they everything, like, all these moving parts come together. But actually, I think it's a very, very tricky thing to do. And a lot of it, I think, is very, very clever. Yeah. Some, there are some bits where I'm like, mm, really? But mm. mostly I think it does, it's done very well. I think the the eight of them all work quite well together. Uh, and, you know, surprisingly, I thought James Corden was quite good in it. He comes in, I thought... James Corden's one of the best things in this film. And uh, yeah. I don't know, you take that how you want. Uh, I thought. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's, he's surprised because he's, 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 he's acting. He's actually getting a performance. He's not goofing around as you know he's not playing himself he's playing an actual character so yeah and there, there are nice little connections to the the previous trilogy and these are characters i would certainly like to see again i'd like to get to know more about them i'd like to see more um 
of Kate Blanchett and Sandra Bullock just hanging out together. That that'd yeah. be really really cool. Uh, obviously, their their relationship is very analogous to the the Danny Ocean, Rusty Ryan, Brad Pitt, George Clooney relationship yeah, yeah. in the first movie. Although she's uh, not eating all the time. In fact, there's a, actually, is there a thing where Debbie's eating most of the time? Yeah, and then she, yeah. she's trying to persuade Kate to eat. Yes, I say Kate because I don't know her character's name. No one does. Right, fine. That's <laughs> right. Then. It's totally fine. So is that is that is that a really very well hidden in joke? I think it might be a nicely hidden in joke. Actually, yeah, I think it might be. I think the biggest miss in this movie is weirdly behind the camera, and that is Soderbergh himself. Now, Gary yeah. Ross, he's you know, Gary Ross is a, is a friend of Soderbergh's. They've worked together very very closely over the years, uh, and Soderbergh is still a producer on this movie. It feels to me like Gary Ross is trying to ape some of the Soderbergh camera moves and some of the Soderbergh sense of style and pizzazz, and he doesn't quite get it. And the first 30, 40 minutes for me is quite flat. It's very dense. It's very plot-heavy as well. But it doesn't really do that classic heist movie thing of this is the thing we need to steal. This is the thing we need to get around to steal it. And this is the obstacle in our way. And we're going to lay out for you quite explicitly what we need to do to get around it. It doesn't really do that. It kind of fills you in as you're going along. Yeah. There's and a muddiness to some of the storytelling. Yeah, a little bit. But it really clicked in for me, getting to spend some time with Sandra Bullock as Debbie Ocean. I mean, she's, she's she does really a really fun. good shoplifting trick in, oh, really um, in a department store, which I thought was great. I went out and tried it immediately after the film. But I thought the last 20, 25 minutes as well kind of soars, which is why I want to see these characters again. But it loses sight of some of the characters, which is kind of weird given how few of them there are compared to the first one. And I don't think that the the personalities of the of the group were as well defined as they necessarily were yeah. in Ocean's Eleven. But, you know, we haven't seen one of these movies for a long time. It's been 2007. That's when Ocean's uh, 13 came out. And, you know, I love a nice, breezy heist pick. And it's done well to box office in the States. So hopefully there'll be an Ocean's Nine or a Seven. Yeah, they can make two more of these, right? Two more of these, and then they have to, they have to collide reboot. in the Ocean Cinematic Universe, in the Ocean's Infinity War, or Infinity Heist, which is actually something I would quite like to see. If anyone's interested in hiring Nick and I, the screenwriters of Unlandable, colon, Upgrade to... What's it called? I can't remember the name. We, <laughs> we will remember the name of that film. Holding Pattern with Cole Weathers. Unland- as himself. I think we should change the title to say Cole Weathers as himself, just Co- to make it clear. With, okay, how about this? Upgrade to... Okay, because it's a sequel to a film that you haven't seen. Upgrade to colon, unla- colon, unlandable. Like, you have to say the colon as well. Colon, unlandable, colon, holding pattern, because they get into holding pattern, right? Colon. Okay. With no, Carl no. Weathers as himself. With Carl Weathers as Carl Weathers. There we go. Do you think? Beautiful. No, uh, I thought this was, this, this was fun, but a little bit flat in parts for me. Uh, but these are characters I would like to see again, and I would hope that Ocean's Nine happens... Um, and it's kind of weird because we were going to do a spoiler special with Gary Ross, but then at the last minute that just didn't happen. So, But it's one of those movies I actually do want to kind of get into and talk about some of the third act revelations and talk about some of the yeah, nods and, and references to the original movie that we can't really do here. But uh, if you're a fan of the Oceans movies, I think you'll have a, a decent time with this one. Three stars then for Oceans 8. Very, very exciting stuff. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast brought to you by Sky Cinema. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by... Someone. I'm not sure who. I hope we've booked someone in. Um, I could look at my notes, but where's the fun in that? And anyway, I probably won't be here, so it's someone else's problem. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Uh, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Nick, a.k.a. Edmund Briggs. Goodbye from both of us. <laughs> <laughs> Why, st- where did Briggs... The Briggs is not canon. 
Briggs is canon. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's canon. Uh, I actually yeah. always assumed that you had a more Americanized surname in it. Because Briggs is a very English surname, and I didn't, I did not think of that character as English. He can't do American accent. It's not been confirmed, but he is I, American. <laughs> I seem to give wiggle room. I could be uh, Chris Pratt's brother, and I assume that's why they've not given their surname yet. Hang on, <laughs> no, he, Owen Grady's brother. I'm, I'm a, that's just an option that that could be uh, possible. Why would Edmund he... and Owen? I can see those two being brothers. Why would just Owen to... Grady not mention his brother once? Because they're estranged. But, but oh, my brother is in the park. Where yeah. is he? Yeah. I mean, just some bad ADR could have just taken care of that little problem. you got to get just, my brother. I'm, ju- I'm just saying they've left it open as an option. Uh, it is goodbye from Johnny. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I am off to Los Angeles, I think. I'm not entirely sure. Am I? I've been given the thumbs up by Nick. I am off to Los Angeles. Bagsy, Los Angeles. Don't forget to pat the banana. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Wise words. Words we can all live by. Don't forget to pack the banana. I'm off to LA, and uh, hopefully Scott Aukerman and Adam Scott are hearing this podcast, and that means I'm going to gate crash. Are you talking REM, re-me? Without their permission, obviously, but I will gate crash that. So join us in a couple of weeks' time for Are You Talking, Are You Talking, Are You Talking, Are You Talking, REM, re-me, 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 re-me. I'll be there. Good ep. Great ep. Thanks for listening. Bye.